Hey guys, this is Sean Joyner. Welcome to the Getting Back Into Place podcast. In this episode, I spoke with philosopher and cultural critic, Rosin Venceslavov. In our conversation, we talk about the philosophy of architecture, aesthetics, phenomenology, ethics, culture and society, and tons more. As a philosopher and cultural critic, Rosin focuses on aesthetics, architectural theory, literature, curating, popular music, and performance art. His work has appeared in several journals, including the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism, Deleuze Studies, Contemporary Aesthetics, and many more. Rosin originated the ongoing Boxing Philosophical Debate series at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Los Angeles. He has been a member of the Encounter Performance Art Collective since 2014, and he is currently Professor of Philosophy at Woodbury University. Rosin has been an important mentor in my education and development, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rosin Venceslavov. I know that you're a professor of philosophy, but I think a lot of people might not know exactly like what that means. Like, what does what do you what do you do? What do you teach? What do you study? What does that mean to be a professor of philosophy? Oh, <laughs> oh where do I start? So, um, I was there was recently a conversation at Woodbury University where I'm teaching, um, and at some point, we were talking to one of our guests on, on the stage, and we realized that that guest is an actor, producer, uh, troublemaker, writer, speaker, all of these things. And I was like, oh, wow, uh, look at me now. I only speak and write, basically, right? So right, yeah. <laughs> these two yeah. functions. But, I mean, that's the rudiments of it, obviously. But um, I guess, you know, to expand a little bit or maybe to narrow it down, um, is to talk about what philosophy does and what philosophy is or means in the moment we're living, right? And so um, I would say I, I still stand for the etymological meaning, which is the, you know, love of wisdom. Um, so, um, of course, you know, you can practice it in different ways, and it's very ecumenical in terms of allowing any kind of discipline to, you know, flood the gates. Um, but as a specialty and as a you know discipline nowadays it's very 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 narrow and very um specific it gets to be very branched and very uh bordered and also border policed in terms okay. of what your interest is which school of philosophy you belong to right. uh, what you believe and what you don't and so forth um, mine is a very, very open-ended approach to philosophy. I care deeply about aesthetics and that's my sort of, you know, subfield, but I also engage ethics. I have been learning more and more about the philosophy of race. As you know, within ethics, uh, within aesthetics, there's all these sub-branches. So, you know, if you're a, a philosopher of architecture, which I call myself every once in a while, um, that means that you're within aesthetics, you have a special interest in, in, uh, in architecture. For example, I don't write about dance, right? So I don't have a special yeah. interest in dance with it. And um, so I do a lot. I've written, written about pop music. I've written about architecture. I've, uh, I'm now slowly but surely writing a book about performance art. And when I say writing, I mean pr uh, present also publicly because very often these are written articles that then either uh, get published or have been published and you're presenting them and so forth. Um, one of my claims to fame in the world of philosophy is conversations about curating because I wrote a paper about uh, eight years ago about curating, which then made waves within my philosophical community. So 
Um, these are some of the interests, but if I have to zoom out and, and talk more about the love of wisdom, I could say that it's in, uh, my curiosity combined with a, with a sense of rigor or the desire to go deep. And, okay. um, and that can mean many things. And I could you know, speak more specifically about what that means to me. Okay. Okay. I, I know an ideal conversation between you and I would probably be four hours, which we don't have. But <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think to unpack some of some of that, you, you mentioned on a, on a kind of, I guess you could say, like in a broad sense, that you're focusing on aesthetics, uh, and and then you mentioned dance in in that because I think I think I don't know. I think when I think of aesthetics, I think of art visual things how things look but i know that it's more than that so well what is aesthetics what what is what is the study of aesthetics within within philosophy well i'd say you know i mean broadly you say that it's the study of beauty but also the study of art right so both and so it's art historically bound but it also um scratches on all kinds of conversations about beauty for example you know human beauty right i mean the uh, aestheticizing of the human body would be a part of aesthetics, even though um, it's not always integrated in a conversation about art. Um, so w- the foremost journal in my field um, in, in the English language on American soil is called the, the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism, right? So it's sort of mm, like, okay. oh, art criticism is a little bit more art specific and then aesthetics is a little bit broader. Um, I'd say, I mean, obviously, it's funny because the word esthetician means two things. It means someone that um, helps people get beautiful in a very sort of like service-oriented context. Um, but it also means a philosopher of aesthetics, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a funny word. Yeah, it runs a range. Um, okay. in, in terms of, you know, the concern for aesthetics historically, modern aesthetics starts with the, at the uh, sort of end of the 18th century where two of these philosophers Baumgarten and uh, and Kant get a very very deep conversation going about what beauty is what beauty is how we apprehend it and so forth and then this that kick starts our entire field of interest that is much more specific and technical than than it had been spoken for uh, spoken about before now that doesn't mean that aesthetic explorations of the philosophical kind haven't happened before in fact they started out with Plato and even before Okay. Okay. So I, I want to dive into that, but I think before that, I am curious because I don't think that you've I've ever heard this from you, but I am curious just kind of how you what that decision looked like when you decided you were going to go pursue philosophy, pursue your PhD, like what your kind of early educational journey looked like, and how you developed into focusing on this area and kind of got to to where you are today yeah that's uh i mean i i don't i feel like i've told this story a thousand times but maybe not to you uh yeah i'm sure i'm sure yeah. i've heard it. it it might it might come up because i know i remember you mentioning like you had an interest in architecture but then you got advice that it'd be better to come from an adjacent field yeah well this, like is yeah. this is later okay. on this is way later okay no gotcha. i think gotcha. i think around the time i'm 16 so i'm an autodidact in a way because my I come from a family of um, of educationally humble folks, right? So 
there wasn't enough of there wasn't enough of oversight or advice within the uh, household. But I, but there were a lot of books, mostly inherited from my auntie who had left, you know, to get married in a different town. And so I'm surrounded by books. I'm super curious, and there's nothing better to do when you're, you know, a child in Eastern Europe uh, in uh, on the communism. Um, and so I ended up reading everything um, and, and uh, lots of stuff that's in age inappropriate, right? So this was kind of the, the uh, rough education in a way. Um, but early on, I, w- I already cared about art and I, was, I loved drawing. So I was drawn to aesthetic appreciation and also making. Um, but again, not structured at all. And the first time that something crystallized in terms of a path to knowledge for me. I was probably about 16, and that would have been very precautious to read uh, the history of madness, or no, sorry, Madness and Civilization by uh, Michel Foucault. And I loved the entire book because, you know, I mean, it's genealogy, history, art history, um, and philosophy, and all kinds of uh, um, modes of thinking. He sort of flexes and relaxes the muscle, the philosophical muscle, in a way that I think is a good entry point for young and impressionable people. And by the last chapter, I was hooked because the last chapter was where he discusses that Goya painting, uh, The Sleeper Reason. Um, And I was impressed. I had seen the, I mean, it's not a painting, it's an etching. I had seen that etching before. And now I was listening to a philosopher, reading a philosopher that was making sense of an aesthetic experience for me. And I loved it. And at that point, I wanted to read more philosophy because it made sense of something I I appreciate and I had very strong intuitions um, about. But suddenly these intuitions were, well, not all of them were confirmed, but they were entertained in a way that I could understand and I I was hooked on. Um, So that would have been probably the, the, the moment, the spark. And then I just started reading more philosophy. And a lot of it is so dry and unpleasant that right. you right. you then have to flex all muscles, which I did, um, because I knew I had already been trained in my mind to be reading preposterous material that is beyond my range, and so that was the the normative condition for me, not the exception, right? I mean, the age appropriate comment I made about a minute ago stands throughout my entire lifetime. I also hmm. pitch text to my students. Um, that are often not age appropriate or not level appropriate, right? I throw them off the yeah. deep end because I've seen it work. Yeah. It yeah. could also be yeah. very intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that, that happened. Uh, I mean, even now, I mean, you and I still touch, and you giving me readings, and um, but I even remember in, in class those years ago, and and even revisiting some of those. And I was, I think, I was reading Schopenhauer. And I was like. Man, I thought I, I thought I've progressed, and man, this this is this is uh, demanding. You know, this is challenging. Um, but I, I forgot. I was listening to some kind of talk, and someone in the it was a Q and A. Man, I forgot who it was. It was some intellectual, and 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 one of the students asked, said something about, "Oh, I get headaches," or like, "What do you? How do you deal with headaches when I'm reading hard material or whatever?" And the guy was like, "Oh, that's good. That means that you're pushing yourself. That means that you're." Like, obviously, you know, we want to be healthy, but he made the point to say to the student that when you're reading material that's beyond your level, it's difficult and 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 it's straining, but kind of similar to working out your physical body. There's a certain kind of fitness to, to pushing yourself and doing that. Um, but what, what do you think about that, that, that thought or that note? I, I mean, look, I think that 
um, it's very important when, when something is difficult, it's very important that it's not um, intentionally so. Um, right. there, are, okay. there are just people that think the way they write on the page, right? You imagine when you read Immanuel Kant and then you read about his life and then you read his letters to his friends and associates, you realize that there's complete follow-through. He was that man, mm. right? And if you okay. think like this and if you speak like this, then by right you should be also writing like it. And then if right. it's hard for the rest of us to understand, then the rest of us can choose to work our way up to that level or not. And right. it's a treadmill, right? And so um, one of the most disparaged um, philosophers in terms of their style of writing is Stanley Covell, and he's one of my favorites. And one of, one of his books starts with a sentence that, is, that has 200 words in it. It never stops, no. 200 words, right? I mean, it's a, <laughs> okay. I think it's an entire page. And it oh. is notorious. And I promise you, Sean, it takes a while to understand it, but it makes sense. It does, okay. And so yeah, yeah. it's sort of like, um, you know, when we talk about flexing, I imagine that flexing for just for the sake of it would be foolish, right? And foolhardy and reckless in terms of health and everything. As you're saying, you don't want to incur headaches. But flexing for the sake of, of uh, finding some level of depth or some uh, further interest or um, understanding something that you're already intrigued by, right? So if there is enough of a decoy and if enough of a reason to uh, go spelunking, then go deep. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So, so not not um, complexity for complexity's sake, but to 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 pursue higher knowledge, to to pursue wisdom, or yeah, and also to to have enough of a sense, and and we often have that sense. Being, as I mentioned, Kant, but not only um, to have a sense that this is not done tendentiously to obscure, right? I mean, it's uh, it's yeah. a, it's a it, there's some invitational quality to the discourse. Either the brilliance, or and or the topic, or something that that gets you hooked in a way that is meaningful to you, and and at that point, it's not done for its own sake. Cool, cool. So, so you you start reading these books, you have that initial spark, um, you you get to, and then what happens next? You eventually. I don't know how where were in Bulgaria you grew up, right? Yeah, well, oh, well, what happens is I I started university at this one university, and I started this very broad humanities uh, program, um, and then realized after a year that <clears throat> it was not enough schooling for me. It was just not intense enough, and so at that point I enrolled at the American University in Bulgaria at the same time, so I could in- intensify or double down on my commitment to learning. And so I was going to two universities full-time at the same time. Probably none of them are, are going to enjoy hearing this because it would have been probably forbidden at that point. Um, and I would just get on a commuter train and go between these two cities and attend classes at both. You know, in one place it was in English, in the other in Bulgarian. And it was a completely different curriculum and completely different approach to curriculum. And so at some point I realized I couldn't consolidate my credit from both of the places um, together at any one of them. Um, so then I needed a third place to bring my undergraduate credit and then get a diploma, which I, which I managed to do in a small college in Brooklyn, right? So then I transferred to Brooklyn, moved to New York City, which is a crazy move for anyone from a small town in Bulgaria to, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world. Um, and then New York becomes home. I finish my undergrad and I decide to do a PhD in philosophy, which I then enroll in um, and then spend a bunch of years uh, learning. So at that point, I, I, could, I could sort of properly focus. I hadn't done philosophy at any of the undergrad institutions because 
Um, the one institution uh, didn't have an attractive enough uh, program and the other one didn't even offer philosophy as a major. So I was sort of doing lots of humanities. I, I incurred about, I think, something like 500 credits um, oh gosh, where, wow. where it took about 130 to graduate, right? So I, I, had, I had exponential uh, piles of learning. But, you know, wow, this gosh. is what happens when you have absolutely no guidance and you, are at, and you are voracious and curious about everything. You end up just learning. I mean, I think you're one of these people. I'm definitely one of these people. I mean, the, uh, the stuff on my desk, the stuff I learned, I, I, just this past week, I've, uh, I've been reading the autobiography of a um, surrealist filmmaker, I've been also reading a poetry book, well, two poetry books, one, one by a black American poet, the other one by um, uh, uh, this Hungarian poet, post-communist poetry, so to speak. And then I also have my philosophy stuff that I'm reading, and I was just rereading Ed Casey because you and I were chatting about it a couple of days ago. So this is just sort of like this, there's this hurricane of possibility, and it used to be like this, and it continues to be like this for me. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely, definitely, um, yeah, my reading list. For me, it's not, I wouldn't say it's random. It's just, I think, even if it cannot be explained that there is some reason to where my mind gets drawn to. Um, but that that diversity of, like, I just finished a Teddy Roosevelt biography, and now I'm reading about uh, Paul Erdish, you know, the mathematician Paul Erdish. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. Um, who I knew nothing about. I, I just randomly, I, I just kind of go and use bookstores and I just find, you know, just kind of pick stuff up. Um, but yeah, yeah, cool. So, so you start, do you start your PhD and, and, and you develop the, well, obviously you had this focus in aesthetics, um, and, and you dive into a focus or specialty. I'm not sure what the right terminology is on it. Cause, cause my understanding of, of, of a, I guess you could say a philosophy education is that there is a kind of foundational, oh yes, like a foundation that's built where, you, where everyone's kind of has the same foundation, and then you move on to to focus on an area. Is that, is that yeah, is yeah, that right? yeah? I mean, it's you start your PhD with coursework, right? And it's uh, there's a bunch of um, mandatory courses. So epistemology is something you study. You study also. Um, logic you study the history of philosophy and there's different subtopics within it you know periods and so forth um i've i've also taken courses in eastern philosophies which i think it might have been mandatory or not i can't remember but you know this is a, a couple of years of coursework right so this is the basis and then while you're doing this, you start thinking about what you really want to work on and what your subfield is going to be. Um, and I knew that it would be, for with me, I knew it would be something to do with aesthetics, but I was also excited about the philosophy of language. I was also excited about some of these other subfields. And so um, then, then eventually you pitch a project for your dissertation. You uh, retain a couple of committee members to shepherd the dissertation into existence and then you finally, at some point, get to defend it, which I did, and then you get a PhD. I mean, it's a tedious process. It's really, and back in the day, it was actually harder. You know, I check in with the new graduates and, you know, uh, new crop at the graduate school where I went to. And it's definitely uh, streamlined right now. I wouldn't say easier, but streamlined. Um, okay. Or maybe I could softly say easier without <laughs> dwelling <laughs> on it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, I've, I'm, I'm just so, you know, because I didn't have any sense of what's right or wrong, 
I would have taken anything, right? So this is this is that precautiousness of um, of unchecked youthfulness and, and energy, and I wish it upon everyone. Yeah, yeah, very okay, okay. So, so yeah, let, let's let's jump back to what you were saying in the beginning, because um, I'm I'm really interested in getting into obviously talking about architecture and place and things like that. But it, it seems like there is a there is a step from aesthetics to getting to architecture. And so I think, I think my initial question is, what do you feel is the, like, why, what, it, what is an investigation into aesthetics teaching us about the world or what do we have to gain from thinking about aesthetics in our life? Like, I, I think the obvious thing, at least, I mean, I have some ideas of why I think beauty and things like that are, are important, but I think, in a large scale, the obvious thing to think about would be like ethics. Like, oh, obviously I can see the importance and value of studying ethics and, and seeing how that might function in, in, a, in a society. But I do think some people might, you know, if you get into the whole maybe utilitarian dis- discussion or utility versus beauty, things like that, why, why talk about beauty? Why pursue beauty? Why, why seek to understand that art, that work of art that you saw when you were younger um, or to understand aesthetics in our life? Um, I mean, I love this question and it's, oh, well, it's a bunch of questions nestled, uh, you know, together. Um, I'll say, you know, just like to the very general one, why study aesthetics? I, and I want to get to architecture definitely in a minute. Um, why study aesthetics? My, my short and blunt answer is with the YouTube comments. YouTube comments, okay. <laughs> YouTube comments are aesthetic judgments at, at their most extreme. We never had that opportunity to see 7 million people react to what Mariah Carey did yesterday on a stage. This is astonishing. And think about how, think about the human compulsion to make that judgment, right? I mean, at some point, these are not numbers. These are, these are humans, right? Someone is typing. Well, you could say, okay, there's a bunch of bots, right? But also, you know that among the bots, there are real people. And also, why are there bots? Because they're designed because there's a certain interest that catches on like brush fire. Um, think about reaction videos. Why are we fascinated with looking at people looking at stuff, right? That's amazing. And so again, this is, this is the appeal of aesthetic imagination and and, and aesthetic uh, experience. It's undeniable. If, if we pretend that that's not a a fundamental part of human existence and human uh, communication and expression, um, then we're missing out, right? So it's, in that sense, I think it's, this, this is as ripe a moment as any, if you think about Immanuel Kant, who started thinking you know, in a very, very uh, uh, strict and, um, and formative way about aesthetics, he wouldn't have had access to, to many artworks, right? I mean, or public institutions right. or any of that. And so, in a way, it's, a, it's an impoverished um, situation in which he sees an opportunity. But for us, it's the opposite. We are at the back end of a, of a, of a civilizational gluttony, right? We have so much art <laughs> right. and so many institutions and so much access. And so, it becomes that much more fundamental. So, that's, that's the one sort of like global comment I'll make. Um, the, okay. the other is that I think, and this is getting closer to ethics maybe or to the rest of our, you know, of human interest, if you will, um, is that I don't think that aesthetics is separable from ethics. In fact, you know, mm-hmm. YouTube comments are a mixture of both, right? Because there's so much judgment of not only of, of what the singer uh, is like as a singer, 
and the level of appreciation we have for, for her voice, but also her person directly, right? Um, right. The ad hominem, that at the person comments, right? And so we do this while we uh, extol beauty or take away judgments of beauty from people. Um, and it is, again, ultimately a way of socializing. If you, I mean, going back to Kant, and I don't want to give him so much airtime, but, you know, at some, <laughs> right, right, at some yeah. point, he's, you know, he talks about subjective universality. And he says, when you make a, any one of us makes an aesthetic judgment, we make a demand on others to agree with us, right? To basically, to create a cohort of, of, um, of uh, cogency and agreement about the particular piece of art or object of beauty. Well, there you are. There's a social aspect yeah. or a socializing, inherent socializing aspect to aesthetic judgment. And once you call it social, you're already broaching issues of ethics, issues of politics, issues of everything right. beyond which beyond what we normally feel is the the aesthetic. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I haven't thought of it that way. And, and now the, this that last point that you made, I think about my my kind of ideas about I, th I think social media and YouTube and things has its like wonderful things to offer. But I also think particularly in your notes about the comments that and I think Nietzsche says something about like the madness of the crowd um, is I wonder about the, well, I don't know. I thought, I think that this is pretty un, undeniable is that there is a, it seems to be a diminishing of discourse just because of the nature of comments and the nature of, whatever is popular and then subsequent commenters, for instance, or subsequent people just agreeing or building on the, the, uh, the, uh, trend or the, the, the opinion of the crowd. And then to me, I feel like, okay, comments are, or, or discourse on social media is not something that is going to, I don't want to say rigorous enough. I don't want to sound like a snob, but that is not going to produce, the type of critical thinking that perhaps that's why I love books and I don't really read a lot online because I think it's just, everyone's just regurgitating the same things. I don't know. I don't know if this is making sense, but I, I, do you have any thoughts I, on that? Yeah. I mean, I know what you're getting at. I'm, I, when I, when I mentioned YouTube comments in these, you know, new modalities of basically sharing opinions and judgments, I'm not extolling them or placing a, a great emphasis on their brilliance. I'm just I'm just talking about totally, the compulsion yeah. to do it, right? So somehow right. we feel compelled, right? And so, you know, these technologies enable it. Of course, it's going to be messier and gnarlier and more reprehensible than it used to be in the 18th century because in the 18th century you had to you had to stand by your word, right? And there was and your body and your word were not uh, so tragically separated as they are now. I mean, at this point, an anonymous comment is coming from somebody, but we have no tangible sense of who they are. We're not in the same room physically with them, right? Um, right and okay. so gotcha. in, this, in this sense, you know, that kind of uh, distancing and that kind of technological um, smoothing out of the conversational space is going to create monsters, right? And he has. And so I, I'm, right. I'm on board with you when you say this is not a necessarily a, a learning environment and it's not conducive of, of critical discourse as we would maybe like it to have, uh, like to have it, but, um, but it's clearly uh, demonstrating the compulsion to make aesthetics judgments. So that's all I, I was see. referring I to. Yeah, yeah. I'm not in any gotcha, way yeah, yeah. praising it. 
correct, right? <laughs> no, no, I know, I know, yeah, and I and I and I, and I know you, I know you're not. I, th- I think, yeah, no, to- totally agree. And 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 to some degree, I think that it, that that fact raises provides opportunity for individuals who really are thinking rigorously and really are presenting things. I think it's I think it's easy, at least to me, it's it's. When I see something of quality, I can tell. Okay, this is a, this is a different level of critical thinking that this person has put through this article, or even a comment or tweet. Um, and I, I, I think that those those are out there. Uh, perhaps we should should jump to to architecture and start talking about to start talking about architecture. How, how did you be? How did you come to engage in the philosophy of architecture? What, what, what does that even mean? Philosophy of architecture. Um, you know, take t- take us in, into that into that that mode of thinking or that that realm of thinking. I I would have been excited about architecture. I remember, I mean, from a very early age, I loved drawing, right? And I loved drawing buildings, and among many things, right? And buildings are actually some of the most boring things to draw when you're a child, right? Because there's they're they're not as animated, so to speak, and they're usually receding the background of say cartoons and you know and. Um, even film. And so I projected a certain level of interest onto them or received a certain level of, you know, assurance or, or um, intrigue from the presence of buildings and the, their shapes and sizes and everything. And I wasn't exposed to much, right? I mean, this is communist Bulgaria, right? When I was a child. So it's a specific, we laugh with, with a friend of mine. We talk about sort of like Pomo Bauhaus because there's, you could see some of the strains of Bauhaus uh, architecture and style in some of, you know, communist architecture in Eastern Europe. But of course, you know, it's done on the cheap and it's mostly, you know, I mean, it's all fully centralized. So there's like an architectural design bureau that is uh, uh, ruled over by the government. And there's probably three, four architects that are just dispensing their uh, square little wisdom upon an entire nation. And so, um, and so that's an interesting world to be living in. It's almost like a, um, like a simulation, right? But I would have been, it would have been curious enough for me and enough for me as a child. Now, when I started reading, part of what I was reading is about uh, spaces and places and the meanings of them and also design uh, um, approaches. And it got more and more interesting as I was reading more. I remember I was inspired, for example, by some of the writing by... Um, Daniel Libskind. I also loved the Rem Koolhaas book about New York. I was living in New York and it was one of the books that, that gave me an insight in New York that you wouldn't find anywhere else. Um, it was imaginative um, and slightly disturbing and also it, in places didn't have anything to do with architecture, which is sort of like the refreshing toggling between architecture and its double or architecture and its shadow or architecture and its opposite. Um, so that, that becomes a, an easy entry point, um, I, for, for a curious mind like mine, not to mention that once I moved to New York, I was finally surrounded by amazing architecture, right? I mean, every, every way I looked and I did try to travel as much as I could. So early on, I, I got to see the Le Corbusier building at, uh, up at Harvard, right? The Carpenter Center and, and also, and marvel at its stupidity, um and so <laughs> oh, so i mean not to mention i remember stopping over stopping over to uh the mit dorms by frank gary and just sort of being stupefied right and i have right, to be yeah. i have to try to be polite and not say more about it but 
a laughter was involved because it's a, just that one, one is incredulous upon, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in front of it, but it's, a, it's quite an exuberant building. And again, I will not say anything more, but enough, enough to intrigue, enough to intrigue me to actually read up, you know, some more and then try to visit, you know, more of these, uh, um, sites and, and then learn about them from different angles. And then at some point I realized that yes, also philosophers who I was curious about were writing about it here and there, not a lot. Right. Um, and then I started reading that. And by the time I was finishing my PhD in philosophy, I was, I was not done studying. I'd never, I, you know, my, my dissertation advisor at some point um, laughed. He said, well, now that you got your PhD, you're beyond learning, right? I mean, you're done learning for the rest of your life. And we both laughed because, of course, you know, it's as we know, a commencement is a proper commencement. It's another beginning. And so I, I sincerely asked myself if I should do a PhD in architecture at that point, right? Because why not have a second PhD? In fact, uh, you know, I mean, at that point, I definitely had the mental resources and patience. Um, but I also didn't have a better plan. I was sort of like, okay, I'll look for a philosophy job to, you know, to teach, but I could also do a PhD at the same time or something. And so I got on the market, you know, to, to look for, you know, for a full-time job in philosophy. I had been already teaching part-time here and there. And then, and then there was this fateful meeting with um, the venerable Kenneth Frampton, the, you know, the scholar and the architecture historian at yeah. Columbia University. And we met in a very informal environment. But essentially, I told him that I was planning to do a second PhD in, in architecture. He said, please don't. Right. So that's the sort of like the one funny right. story in, in my trajectory when it comes to the philosophy of architecture. He goes, you will be of service much more to architecture if you came with your fresh philosophical mind to it rather than if you get indoctrinated by us and so he said we'd love to have you at columbia because a person that has a phd in philosophy very rarely shows up at our doors right so we'd be honored to have someone like you with your preparation and we're with your sense of um you know rigor and everything but it just doesn't make any sense for you <laughs> i see I see. And you took that advice. Yeah, and I was, you know, I mean, to be, you're the friendly outsider, right? And, and so at this point, I'm an honorary member of the architectural community because I, I'm friends with lots of architects. We have these, these uh, uh, impactful conversations about their work and mine. And we find, a, you know, we find a connections. There's been, you know, there was a, a symposium at Woodbury University, at the Unmentionable Symposium, and that had to do with interior uh, design mostly. But also architectural um, um, interest um, more broadly, and you know I participated in both iterations of it. In, and in both, well, it, one of them I was an MC, right, for the entire session for a full day. The other one I was actually up on stage, you know, having a, a as an interlocutor. So um, all of it to me by now is natural, and it it starts from that one impactful and. Um, easygoing conversation with a very smart and gentle man, um, Kenneth Frampton. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, one of the things that I've that I, I mean, ever since I was introduced, really truly to philosophy in your classes as a student, that I came to appreciate about it because I already would try to kind of engage in this process myself, but I think your mentorship and classes have helped. And and the reading subsequent readings have helped me to gain more tools to do this. But the the sometimes seemingly obvious 
even just words or terms, there's so much more to what we mean by them. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what do we mean when we say architecture? What do we mean by that? Well, I mean, I think it's a good question. And it's, you know, these foundational questions definitely belong to philosophy. I mean, of course, they belong also to the history of architectural theory, you know, starting from Vitruvius and before. Um, I'll say that it's important to uh, push push away to be aware of all of the normative descriptions and definitions, but also to push away and resist them. So one thing you hear, of course, is the master builder um, uh, designation. And I think that's great because because it's a good place to start, right? Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, but mastery is such a fraught proposition in the day and age we live in. Um, I loved the title of an art show. It was a big retrospective of Gary James Marshall's work a couple of years ago. And the, the, the title was Mastery but misspelled, right? So without the E, right? And so it was sort of like, okay, take it now. Um, and that's a version, that's a version of mastery, something that architecture is very good at also. Um, so I think, you know, at its bare bones, it has something to do with the built form, but not only. It has something to do with space and place. Um, and it also has something to do with ecology. In fact, and this is this I find fascinating, um, both economy and ecology have that eco part, and oikos in 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 ancient Greek or Greek even until today means home. So, so I think you know it's a funny thing when you talk about buildings and you and you I mean think about housing crisis right? We talk about unhomed individuals, right? And so home is at the home is at the center, that pivot around which everything seems to revolve, including what Vitruvius is talking about. But that doesn't mean that that philosophy or architectural theory pays enough attention on these continuities, right? So think about economics and ecology. If those two were married in our consciousness, we wouldn't have a climate crisis right now because we will be taken care of of nature as if it was an economic proposition. And in fact, both of them start start with echo and both of them mean home, literally, right? So, so yeah. um, going, you know, taking a, taking a step back and asking the question again, what is architecture? I, I say um, we're yet to figure out what makes sense as architecture for our age. And it's easier to, to do that in the rear view mirror. I see in the retrospective. Okay. That, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point with the, the eco. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I obviously didn't know that. And that's, it's so true. And it makes, it makes so much sense. I, I think that that is a nice segue into some of the ideas that Edward Casey talks about with, I was, I didn't get through the whole thing and I'm still, this, this, this his writings at Edward Casey, the actually, um, Rawson, could you, could you kind of just tell the listeners who Edward Casey is? And then, and then I can dive into that question just so we kind of know. We're well, I mean, about. it's one of those, one of those strokes of luck in my life. Again, if you, I think if you cast your net wide enough, which I always have, you eventually find some gems, right? And so, you know, I ended up meeting Kenneth Frampton in a very casual way, and I'm a lucky bastard to have to have had that opportunity. With Ed Casey, he was teaching a class which was uh, remotely of interest to me, 
and I signed up for it. And he was at he wasn't even teaching there full time. He was at the new, but just for a semester or two, he was at the new school um, in in New York City. But normally he was based in uh, SUNY Stony Brook. And I think that his appointment at this point is between Sto- SUNY Stony Brook and the University of uh, UC Santa Barbara. And so, so we're talking about this journeyman that has been in all these important departments and has had a huge impact. And I, have, I was vaguely um, aware of his work. And suddenly I take a course and, it's, and we're in the fast lane. The, first, the paper I wrote for that course, he actually advised me to publish, to submit to a journal, which got to be my first publication in a peer-reviewed journal. So we're talking instant mentorship, right? I mean, someone that sees talent and promotes it and pushes it. Ed Casey was someone, I mean, I'm not even talking about his work yet. I'm talking about, you know, how lucky I am and also the man. Um, he was someone who at the end of the semester would take all of us to this French restaurant in the, in the uh, West Village in, in New York and pay for all 20 people or whoever was in, in class, pay for this uh, ostentatious oh, wow. dinner. And that would have been probably at that time, it would have been still at least $1,000, right? Out of his pocket. I know that oh, the wow. university is not wow. paying for this. And so this is one of those um, moments where, and, you know, there was wine involved, you know, the, no, no holding back, you know, wine and drink and everything and, um, and food and dessert and just the entire, and then, you know, cigarette breaks because almost everybody smoked. Um, yeah. So <laughs> right. all of the above in, at that time in New York. Um, now his scholarship, you know, his, He's known to work on duration, to work on place, right? And the sort of the dichotomy space and place. Um, and then also on memory. And he comes in a tradition of phenomenological tradition. So a lot of uh, sort of the signposts of his thinking would, would start with Husserl and then go through Heidegger into Merleau-Ponty. That's the sort of... Uh, he also taught... The first course I took with him was... On, uh, on Deleuze, the French philosopher Deleuze, and Henri Bergson, scientist slash philosophers from the sort of turn of the century. Um, and it was kind of like comparing their, their thinking and, and then engaging some of the commonalities, which I did in my paper, which ended up getting published. Um, so um, Casey is a juggernaut. He's very important actually for historians nowadays and also anthropologists because any look back, intentional look look back on on how things used to be culturally or um, or uh, politically um, can be informed or can benefit from from his philosophy of uh, remembrance. Um, I imagine that you know I haven't delved deeply into it, but I imagine the people that do a lot of work nowadays on monuments and also the removal of monuments and the reconceiving of what the monument is would benefit greatly from from everything he's written. Very cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the the story that story of you engaging with him. That's awesome. Yeah. So what I wanted. So yeah, what I was going to say, but but before and and that. Thank you for that. Is that his writings, since you've introduced me to them, have definitely been in the category of those um, pushing uh, above my level, you know, p- pushing me to to think about things in, in new ways. But I wanted to to talk about uh, space and place and and the kind of I don't even know if it's a dichotomy, but the the difference between those. And and as you know, this podcast, getting back into mm. place, is 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 named after one of. Ed Casey's books called by the same name, um, and getting into his writings is what inspired me to really dive into this investigation in this in this podcast. But 
you know, from my, my very, very um, beginner understanding of the, the, the beginnings of what he's talking about with space and place is that, is that for many years, our assumptions was that space was this kind of ether or void that kind of encompassed the universe and that places were, our place was merely the particular of, of that space. So place was merely just identifying sections of, of within space. Um, and his argument seems to be that the notion of place becomes before space and that there is a fundamental significance to that. And that's kind of what I want to start talking about with you. Um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm at, I'm at the kind of, um, broader levels of, of the thinking, but why is it important to think about these things? How, what is space? What is place? How, you know, how can, how can we start to think about the, the significance of these two terms? Um, yeah, and broaden our well, thinking. Well, I'll, I'll say that first of all, congratulations on starting a podcast because it was high time. Um, but also, but also, <laughs> oh, it's a genius move to call it whatever you've called it. You know, getting back into place because I think it's uh, it's an important shift in in a, a lot of the conversations that are happening out there. I mean, I mentioned monuments a second ago, so part of what we do to monuments now is basically um, reinscribe them. And so it's sort of we're, we're rewriting the script of where they belong, right, literally. And so it's interesting because they are they're very, very much uh, places in a way, right? They're signposts or they're, um, um, they're dots on our mental and phenomenological and experiential map in, a, in an undeniable way. I mean, I'm thinking of Columbus Circle, which I continue calling Columbus Circle when I'm trying to tell a New Yorker um, how to get somewhere, right? But why? Because there's a Columbus statue in the middle and it celebrates something that we are less and less inclined as a culture to celebrate, right? So I'm not endorsing right, it, right? right? But it's such, a, it's, a, it's such an important part of my psychogeography. Um, so I think, I think that only on that count, it's important to, take about, 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 to talk about place. But a little bit more deeply, you know, if you think, I mean, I've, there's this, and I, I end up doing this as a non-native speaker of, the, of English, where when I hear one of these expressions, I sort of quiz it as if it doesn't make sense. So my first, my first, it's it's not necessarily a skepticism; it's more of a playfulness. So when I hear um, "there's no place like home," I, I immediately this is a reflex for me. I ask myself, "Oh, there's no home like place." Let's see if that works, right? Interesting. And in fact, it <laughs> works okay. perfectly. There is literally no home like place because. Place is the original home, right? And there, and that's that's the, the the beauty of what Casey's trying to say is that we start from place, literally. So instead of saying, "Oh, there's this abstract sense of space that is unbound and unregulated that we start from, and then we carve little places in it," which is like the normative assumption, right? The sort of the Western paradigm. Yeah. He says, "No, all of us start yeah. from place, meaning we are already placed somewhere, and we grow." outwards from there and we we imagine a universe or build a universe outwards from from place rather than have a universe already at the ready that then we shrink down to, to places right if that makes sense so gotcha. so yeah, yeah. literally there is no home like place 
Yeah, that's 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 good. <laughs> in, yeah, I mean, good. he he uses okay. you know, and yeah. then he he plays with this idea of home, and I keep you know keep hammering this uh, this point. But um, again, to be to be unhome technically means to not have shelter, right? But in the abstract and philosophical sense, it means to to um, fly over the concept of place and commit to an abstraction that we call space, which is, as I said, unregulated, unrestricted, but also an abstraction, right? So we keep forgetting that to talk about this universal concept of space is unproductive, and it very often has nothing to do with our experience or our phenomenological being. We are always in place and almost never in space. How about that? (laughs) That's true, yeah, yeah. I mean, are there any, I mean, to, to kind of take your exercise, like, is there any moment when we're not in place? Like, is there really any moment, I guess, like, while we're conscious, if, but even still, that we're in space and not in, in a place? In case you would argue that there isn't. And I would, I would agree. I mean, okay. this is, you know, basically, uh, it's funny because it, even, you know, the, someone like Aristotle, I've been, you know, Casey does the due diligence to the, you know, the dark history of philosophy, even Kant would agree. Even those, you know, the philosophers that are really, um, um, uh, fetishizing the, the, that abstract idea of space are reasonable enough to say that we, the, the place is fundamental, right? Um, so, um, so I, I don't think we. It's even productive to add to to um, question place. Uh, what's productive is to question space. I see. Okay. So l- let me ask you this, and definitely tell me if I'm like jumping into something that's not yeah, connected. Yeah, yeah. But so far in my thinking about this, it seems to be. Um, and Casey talks about this, and I do have an interest in just just Einstein and, and some of his thinking and things like that. But when we think of like space time or space in the in the in the sense of of physics, I think I think a lot of that thinking is that because Casey does make some notes where he does specifically call out the notion of space and time, but how place is left out of that. But and then in my mind, whether just from unsophistication, it immediately goes to. Well, the kind of this, the space-time model within physics makes sense. How does place fit into that? But I think that I'm. I think that I might have my thinking reversed. That I don't know. How, how, how can I? How can I? How can I start to think about those? The concept of space and time, which for me, to me, within that framework, space is suggesting a location, you know, and quote unquote, I guess, space. Um, and so when I think of how I'm operating or, or moving through the world, I'm, my struggle engaging in this notion of place is that I still do think about place as like a particular of space. Like is that this is just an identifier of the location that I'm in within space. And I'm trying to like, how, how can I challenge that, I guess? That's making sense. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I could out sort of go in uh, in a roundabout way. You've seen so many student projects in architecture. You've also seen your own, right? When you draw these sketches and make models and everything. One of the most exasperating things that happens in architecture reviews, and I always try to mention it because I think it's a learning opportunity for everyone, including the uh, educators, is that there's a presumed God's eye view 
when we're looking at architectural models and um, you know sections or whatever whatever representational material is being offered, um, you very often see a building from a sort of like. I mean, at this point, you could call it a drone's eye view because it's sort of like, you know, 60 foot above the building, but slightly at an angle. So you could see at least three of, you know, three of uh, its walls or something. And, and so think about how contrived this is. We never experience a building from that perspective. Why would we ever represent it like that? It's absolutely preposterous. Yeah. Right. It's it's excluding the right. human. It's excluding the human. Somehow. Why? Why would I ever be sitting and looking at something that that excludes me by default? Right. And so this is a this is a representational abstraction that I think is faulty. And I think is also uh, rudely um, unethical because it removes the human element and the human gaze and the human interest. And so to go back to the question of place and space. Right. Um, the only place, the only uh, locus of human interest you, you and I have is place. We don't have space as any kind of immediate reference. In fact, it's a pure abstraction, and it's meant to be. So it's the same way that mathematical models are, right? Um, the same way that actually physics right. uh, uh, posits these abstractions, and then we could rein them in or or um, or relate them to phenomenological experience or to durational uh, um, embeddedness, and and then we get a very different picture of them, or the picture bends completely, or they disappear. So um, you know there is I don't I, I don't know if you remember because we've read it. Oh, at some point, um, the, and again, Cam Frampton, he wrote that critical regionalism essay about, I don't know, 30 years ago, and now he's uh, mm-hmm. updated um, mm-hmm. more recently. But, you know, strategies for critical regionalism, and, you know, to, he, he gives six points, basically, of how we could get back into place, essentially, right? I mean, he doesn't use the word as often as Casey does, and as intentionally, but it has a lot to do with that. But um, essentially, he then names the a- enemy. And Casey and Frampton are, are working on two different projects. One is an architectural historian. The other one is a philosopher. And, and yet they arrive at the same notion of who the enemy is, right? They're, they're pushing against the same thing. And what they're pushing against uh, is universalization. So when, you, when we speak of, of, okay. of space as a universal, as this abstract concept that is beyond, beyond any, any particularity, right, which is what you, you actually said it feels like, and that's how it's been posited in the literature, right, you know, for ages, then w- what we're doing is we're, in, we're endorsing um, this chimera. We are endor- endorsing this monstrous um, entity, right? And so, and then make make that if we make that the normative position, which is we all start from space, and space is fundamental rather than place, and uh, space is more interesting in terms in physical terms and in philosophical terms and in aesthetic terms and so forth. Then, then uh, okay. we're okay. making an ideological leap. And the two of them are trying to rein this in and to resist it, right? And, I mean, v- verbatim, um, um, Casey says that we, well, let's just get back into place, right? I mean, let's pull, pull back. Right. And then um, critical regionalism means exactly what it says, right? Let's just bring it back to the, to the, to the spot, to the site, to the place. Right? Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this really makes sense. So especially especially the the visualization of the architecture review and viewing these places that students are making i mean even professionals because it's the same thing in in the in professional practice 
where I, I can see the ripples of that because we are thinking in this kind of God's eye view or this kind of conceptual spatial sense. We're thinking about even our projects as like objects in space rather than, I mean, not even rather than, but it almost, it almost, yeah, I will say it this way that the, the concept of, the building or the work of architecture as an object in, in space seems to supersede the notion that it is a, a place that is being created or an experience that is being created. Because I do think that that is important, but I think conceptually within at least traditional architecture education, which I think, think is, could be arguable, but I think it has a heavy emphasis on like formalism. Um, I think that the emphasis is that this is a, object that then people are going to inhabit rather than this is a place that we are cultivating and almost like a garden maybe um and tending and kind of conjuring uh as as a as a part of um human experience i think because i don't don't think that they're mutually exclusive i think any architect that i talk to would agree that they're creating experience but yeah yeah i i I haven't well i mean I'll just go back to the master builder for a second. To be creating an experience is a condescension already. Because experience is already on the way. I mean, if you ask Ed Casey, um, he'd say that anyone walking down the street is already positing a world. In in fact, Heidegger says this. Heidegger says when we build a bridge, we create the space around it. And the bridge basically gathers the entire universe, right? And so what this means is that it responds to it and, and, and throws a proposition back onto it and so forth. But it's much less condescending and linear and top-down than, than architects assume. Um, I'm actually tired of hearing of, uh, about architects trying to create experiences, right? I mean, because that's really a normative and, and um, it's paternalistic, right? And it's very typical of the master build. In fact, when you look at the sort of morphology of, that, of, of the early philosophy, both from Plato and from Vitruvius, both of them assume that the architect is an executive presence, which is a CEO type of presence, you know? Mm. And I think, I think that actually mm. Plato mm. compares the architect to a king. I mean, of course, it's gendered back in the day, but let's, let's just call him a monarch, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that, that's a danger. Um, I mean, think about Los Angeles for a second, how many of these um, modern and postmodern uh, buildings and developments do not address the street level. They refuse to speak to the street, right? And so the reason is that they posit worlds. They posit abstract worlds. So it's almost like they haven't moved from the representational quality of architecture student reviews in the sense that there is that God's eye view and and you're plumping something in what you consider abstract space. In fact, very often the cities or our cities are spoken about as if they're abstract spaces rather than um, layers of, of histories and palimpsests and these gnarly propositions of lived experience. And so you could imagine that the, you know, the, sort of the, the way to resist that kind of universalization would be to try to build responsive architecture. Not responsible, but responsive, right? Because to be responsive is already a condition for being responsible. Whatever that might look like. And we, we do have examples. You know, there's good architecture out there, here and there. 
Yeah. Like, like what, what would be one? Like, I'd be like, like, a, like one or two. Or... I'm very curious. I haven't seen it, so I shouldn't speak too much about it. But the um, opera in Oslo is exciting to me. Uh, it's a Snohera project. And so I'm excited about the way it, um, you know, there's like an incline that actually hits the water. And so that's a very playful gesture, I think, to the two being on the water side, right? So finally, it's not a promenade that hangs over the water and lo- allows for a selfie, right? There is that kind of almost visceral s- uh, slipping into the water, right? So it's a, it's um, so there's it's a slope that goes directly in the waves, right? Um, so I mean, again, I've seen pictures, but I've asked a bunch of friends who have been actually who have seen it in real life, and they confirm my intuitions. And you know, I've read about it, looked at the pictures, and everything. But it also uses, you know, in, in the critical regionalist um, uh, mode of uh, thinking, it also uses a lot of uh, local materials in a very, in a sort of like sublime and um, exuberant way. There's a lot of wood in the interior that is, you know, directly called from the, you know, from the surroundings. That, I think, is a good poetic gesture or may, maybe the beginning of engagement. Think of opera houses generally, right? They don't have rough, raw wood um, anywhere on the interior. It's all gloss, Right. And then right. another right. thing that that opera houses does, well, opera house uh, does, which which if, if I I want to, be, this is one of the few times where I want to turn back time and be a child again. Um, the entire back back house of the opera is exposed through a glass wall to pedestrians on the on the street level, so you're actually able to see the mechanism of opera from behind. Who has ever done this, right? Opera is mysterious, you know, and it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. And it's the sublime art that combines all of the arts. We've never been in the kitchen. And now everyone in Oslo can take their little coffee and sit and at the back of the house and look at how it's being done. You don't even need a ticket for that, right? So again, again, this is responsive to the condition of curiosity, to the condition of scale, to the condition of, um, of mechanic, mechanical interest. To the, to the local condition of materi- materiality, to also the, you know, being at the waterfront. These are a couple of ways in which that opera house seems to do it. Now, have, I haven't seen it, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure some people will be critical for whatever reason. Maybe it's like a lumbering thing in scale, and then it doesn't work at all. But I think that these are good beginnings of, of uh, scratching the surface of responsiveness. Yeah, that's, that's really good. That's really good. we got to stop saying we're creating experiences or create or putting something there this this seems to be part like i think this that critique is part of the i don't want to say like that that this is new because i think this has been happening but the heightened attention on a lot of people really advocating for a fundamental shift in like the process of architecture of 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 the architect being more of like a citizen architect like a contributor in the community who has skills and abilities but that is a collaborator and is working uh, essentially aside um the the community i guess you could say as opposed to the master builder who has the answer and is going to you know, present a, a mat, a gift, the, the masterwork to the people as a, as, you know, and then it's a privilege for the people to, to experience this thing that, that the, the master builder has, um, 
has created in 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 his workshop or yeah or workshop you, or whatever it is do you i don't know if this is probably anecdotal but i feel like i've heard this somewhere um um and it's it's worth actually you know checking on um there's one of these towers one of these older um towers in the city square at brussels if i'm not mistaken but i think it's brussels um, is famous that for for an incident where the architect hadn't built and then realized that it was a little bit crooked or a little bit tilting, right? You know, the sort of the spire or whatever. And then just work his way up to the top and jumped and killed himself because he couldn't bear, right? He couldn't bear oh the failure. Um, and this is some medieval, this oh, is man. some medieval. Laugh, no, 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 it is laughable. And here's why, because this ties yeah. the bow of egocentric architecture, right? It's sort of like there is a master builder and there's a vision. And if it doesn't meet your level of excellence, then you have to die, right? And all of this is, this is the poetry right. of, of how self-serving and how out of touch architecture can get. And of course, in the, in the past, it would have been even more centralized and even more dogmatic and even more universalizing in its vision because you're relied on a king or some kind of, you know, rich person to commission a work and then to sponsor it. And usually you couldn't even complete it in one lifetime because of the slowness and the, right. And so, so in that sense, it's much more, it's almost cartoonish, right? Nowadays, you know, we build faster and we, we build bigger and there's all of these resources and um, lots of capital and, and lots of stakeholders and such, which makes it seem more, more uh, democratic, but it's not. Um, and so, or egalitarian or whatever we want to call it. But um, going back to, uh, you know, to the sort of the reconceiving of architecture, I have been thinking more and more, and this is in the last couple of weeks, but it started with reading this philosopher's book about architecture Paul Geyer, who's one of you know, who's one of the most important voices in the philosophy of architecture, um, wrote a book, and it's a it's a curious title. The book is called uh, "A Philosopher Looks at Architecture," right? So it's very carefully calibrated. It's not thinks about architecture, but looks at right. And so and so, I don't necessarily love the book, but of course, there's so much to learn from it. And Paul Geyer is one of the foremost voices in Kantian studies, right? So. Um, Imagine someone who takes all, the, all of this deep knowledge of, uh, of Kant and then applies it to architecture. So it's indispensable. But, um, but the one thing that, that bothers me in the book is that he frames the entire conversation in the book around the Vitruvian triad, right? So uh, firmness, um, utility, and beauty. And I'm missing, I'm missing an element there. And I think that if Vitruvius didn't see it, and if Plato didn't see it, we are now able to see it. And the fourth element that we're missing is justice. Justice is not about firmness and it's not about beauty and it's not about utility. It is very well connected to all three, but it's a separate element. How, 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 do, you, how do you address like the... Because I think that there is... And I know that you know this, but I I'm, I'm, want to bridge the gap. Like When I think about justice in architecture... I think I think that there is a temptation similar to what we were talking about for architects to think like when we think about the unhoused for instance there's there's a big te- I mean there's many people who are, who are very collaborative or doing great work I, I definitely want to acknowledge that but I think this especially happens in school is that there is a posture of I'm, I'm, uh, if I design a really like a really well designed structure, and 
you know, I'm just going to basically the unhoused become like a construct, like a conceptual construct. And ultimately, and it might sound cynical, I think a lot of designers or people in architecture are drawn to the unhoused because the solution seems to be an architectural solution and, 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 they, and they want to help. But my, 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 my question ultimately is how do you take the notion of justice that you're talking about and not make it, oh, I'm an architect, I, have, I, I can save the day or I can, architecture is going to solve these really fundamental human issues. What do you, what do you mean when you say justice? Like, how do we, how do we think about it in the proper I context? At or? this point, at this point, I'm old enough to, to be willing and able to quote myself. So a couple of years ago, there was one of these zoom calls where we were talking about issues of justice and um, it dawned on me in the moment. And I had, and I said it in that conversation, I don't mind repeating it. Justice is a slow technology. It is, you can think of it as a technology, right? But, you, but it's much, much, much slower than what than our technologies normally work in terms of, you know, software updates or such, right? But even the hardware. Um, I mean, the civil rights movement hasn't ended. That gives me goosebumps. It hasn't ended. Um, the women's rights movement hasn't ended. You know, there's so much. And, and look around the globe, right? I mean, we have, you know, a right-wing wave that is sweeping through the entire, basically, planet. And so, so justice is slow. And, I mean, if, if it took Socrates 70 years of, uh, of his full life to look for justice and not really find it and be able to formulate it finally and once and for all, then that means it, we got to take our time. And so when you look at, um, at um, firmness and beauty and um, utility and you marry it with, with other technologies of today, you whip up a project in 10 days. It just, we are, and, and we're getting less and less patient about it, right? Well, when we, when we talk about housing issues, we, you know, in order to address the justice part of the equation, that's that fourth basically part of the, that is missing in the Vitruvian triad, we just have to take our time. And that means basically, you know, I, I mean, it's clear what it means. Think, think of um, um, political activists. Activism doesn't deliver. It's not a solutionist approach. It's a commitment approach. So because you're not guaranteed a solution. In fact, you're not guaranteed a solution in your own life. Imagine the exasperation of everyone that was living and uh, breathing the same air with Martin Luther King Jr. when he died. Well, was murdered, right? So um, the exasperation is, oh, so much work to do and we've lost, you know, our beacon. Um, but the so much work to do is the honest, no one, no one in their right mind would have said, oh, we've, we finished and we did the job. I mean, think of like, you know, the civil war, it didn't end nothing, right? I mean, it, it only basically started a bunch of new problems, opened a, a bunch of new boxes. And so, um, to, uh, homelessness and, you know, the, the issue with it is a perennial issue of the Western world. And it has to do with how we conceive of home. I mean, again and again, you and I come back to the same notion, right, in this conversation. Ecologically, economically, and so forth, right? So look at our economics. Our economics is an economics of gluttony and overconsumption and waste. In that nexus of those three, there is no place, literally, no place for humanity. So we need to question our economics. 
And then when you look at our, our ecological approaches, right, it's, we, we basically live on an extractionist principle. There's enough of nature and enough of diamonds and we just need to, you know, carve it out and set it in, in a nice ring so we could just keep proposing to each other. Um, and, and that's preposterous, but that's the logic of, of the world we're living in. And so to reconceive that logic and to address justice in the, in the built environment is to slow down. Hmm. Yeah. How many of us, I mean, can you imagine for a second uh, any, any developer that says, yeah, this project that could take six years uh, or six months, I'd rather take six years so we could take everything into account. Yeah, I mean, not, not, not going to happen, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I hear, yeah, it's like, it's like that, um, the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, he says, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There's also, well, yeah, I mean, this is almost verbatim coming from Socrates, or, or it describes Socrates' life, because he would have, you know, uh, he would have been very honest about it, um, the old Greek man. Um, there's, um, in, and this is kind of like a true line, and I mentioned this when I teach ethics to my students. So um, it's funny how almost everything that Henry David Thoreau says in, the, in his essay on civil disobedience actually applies to both Socrates at retroactively and also to Martin Luther King Jr. futuristically because he came about 100 years before before the civil rights movement. But he says verbatim, he says in that essay, uh, expediency is the enemy of justice. So if you want to go fast, you're going to miss out. Gotcha. So patience. We got to be patient. Yeah. And expediency, of course, means utility as in what, you know, literally utility, but it also means speed. And when we gotcha. marry speed and utility by virtue of our technologies, we run away from justice, literally run away. And, you know, if you if you look at something like, say, Karl Marx in the 19th century, talking about early capitalist practices, he says in the in the in capital, he says our policies where we try to figure out what these companies and these big juggernauts, industrial juggernauts are doing are usually lagging behind by about 30 years. So essentially, they run away with whatever they're doing. I mean, think of Silicon Valley, right? At this point, we're beginning to get the sense of how damaging the presence of Silicon Valley is in the world. Why? Because it's been about 30 years on an average, right? And so we're cresting into awareness. And now we're trying to make legislation that is antitrust, anti-this, anti-that, to make sure we corral the unconscionable influence these companies have. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. So, okay, I think that this is a, to take it back to architecture and humanity, the, the notion that where we are has to do with who we are, like, or like place and being. I mean, the thing, the thing that I always want to ask you is like, how, like, what is the found kind of the foundation for how one should begin to think about that notion of place and being? I think for the average person that that might not be so obvious. What, what kind of ways can we start to understand how those things are connected, I think? So well, it's, um, it's a one thing I'd like to quote uh, these days because I remember hearing it back in the day and not understanding what, what the speaker was saying. And then I realized that it, further on, as time was progressing, I realized it was the most prophetic thing that they could have said at that moment. Um, 
one of my favorite music artists is David Bowie. And I think that I'm, he's, he's a favorite not only as a musician, but also as a supporter of other musicians. He has started and supported the careers of so many. And then he's known to also have been very promiscuous as an artist in, in, in terms of genre, in terms of self-expression. There's all these periods in his work and everything. He's worked with so many fascinating people. But he's also a trailblazer in one particular way. He was the first musical artist or any kind of artist to have his own website. And this was, I think, around 1993. And I remember seeing an interview somewhere, probably on MTV or something. And they asked him, why do you have a website? I mean, at that point, no one did. And we were using um, um, a browser called Netscape. And if you, if you typed in, you know, if you search, say, for Andy Warhol, you get two hits. You know what I mean? Like this is the, this is how, and we felt so lucky because it's sort of like free information out there on the net. Right. Um, and so he, he had a very blunt answer. He said in the future, we will be defined by the websites we visit. That's what he said. That's it. That's it. And so think about, think about how today on this very day, most of this, the, world that has that uses any kind of advanced technology is um posting and reposting their spotify music profile the types of songs that they listen to this year and all of that and celebrating their identity celebrating their identity i repeat through the determinations of a corporate algorithm david bowie knew the future before we ever even sniffed it out I mean, in the 70s, when he played with these gender roles and gender expression, we couldn't have known how promising and how important. I mean, people were sensing it. And he gave permission to a lot of folks to feel the way they do and to dress the way they do and so forth. But we couldn't have known the explosion of conversations that this world enable, right? And I'm not giving him full credit. I mean, we're talking about a straight white man from, you know, Great Britain, right? So he doesn't carry all the credit. He just gets to be in the conversation and to play that, you know, kind of prophetic role, minor or major uh, as it is. But in terms of promising or, or predicting the future of, of, of self-definition, uh, through this fully networked environment that we now live in, he was a proper, proper uh, seer and clairvoyant, right? And so, so this is now, of course, you know, also a, a question for us because what does this have to do with place and what and, and with space and with the architecture and the built form and everything? And I would say immediately that it's a liability, right? Because it is essentially it's universalizing through companies like Spotify. Um, it's uh, and streamlining, no pun, um, our existence into an abstraction, into an abstraction. And so the way to pull back, the way to pull back into into live humanity, I think the only way to pull back is the social. And this is if this is what Casey proposes in terms of phenomenological embeddedness. We walk through a room, but the walking through a room is socializing with its makers with its inhabitants, with its possibilities and its objects. And it's a porous membrane between us and it, and it works on us and it constitutes us and we constitute it right back as, in, as, as, um, uh, pr- uh, as a potent presence within. And of course, this is 
amplified when it's when it's a human to human interaction but it exists also between humans and the bird and the environment and the human and an animal and a human in a chair right and so and so these continuities are you could we could think of social of the social in in this uh, all-encompassing sense and what Casey points out, which we don't need Casey because we have anthropologists and historians and all kinds of thinkers out there to remind us, is that um, indigenous cultures and, you know, ancient cultures already had a very robust sense of how embedded and how interconnected everything was. So we can just learn from yeah. the best. Yeah, yeah. The The last thing I wanted to talk to you about because uh, this has been a very deep interest of mine for many years, is uh, music and architecture. <laughs> and I, I guess I guess I'll start with like kind of my thoughts about it and like what I've been, what I think is true about it, and you can kind of respond to that. But ever since you introduced me to the concept of duration, which we might have to define, and I think you were also the one who put me on to the connection between music and architecture when I was a student. Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess my kind of starting point is that because music is something that can only be experienced as time unfolds, where you can't experience an entire song in like one moment. You have to listen to the song as it unfolds through time. And because I think it's undeniable that music does hold with it certain emotional el- elicitations or visceral responses or just feelings of of um, the spirit or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, that there are things, and and then also the then the flip side of that is that I also believe that architecture are are I guess we could say palatial experience, like like Casey would say it is also something experienced as in duration as time unfolds that there are and then and then also within spatial within palatial experience there Mm. are aspects of rhythm and time and structure that have to do with it i've always thought that by looking at the experiential and like phenomenological aspects of how we experience music can teach us things about how we create architecture. And I'm curious if there's any merit to that or because I think a lot of the things that I've read about music and architecture always just jump to some formal thing, always jump to somehow trying to take from music, some formal result or to manifest some form or geometry or some physical thing. And then to me, to me, that's that's just seemed to miss the point that no, this is this is a phenomenological study or this is like an experiential study, and because we experience these things the same way, we should be looking at how over time, you know, how music goes to like through a crescendo or goes from a verse to a chorus and to 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 the solo and how that has an effect. That there are things in chronology, also in space in uh, spatial experience that we can learn from it. But anyway, I don't want to I don't want to go on too much. 
I'm just curious of what you think about that. Like, if you if you could respond to that, like how we can think think about. I things. mean, first of all, it's a. I think it's a thankless question because there's so much um, so much misguided information out there or interest in there altogether. You know, I, I think that someone mm. at some point said that architecture was frozen music or something like this, and it was just yeah, like, that was a yeah. But the <laughs> minute right. you say this, you you are you are architectures and music's an enemy because you're you're missing the point of duration precisely right i mean frozen yeah well okay yeah um <laughs> right and right. and but this the, you know we could retreat back into vitruvius because you know vitruvius talks about symmetry and eurythmy right and eurythmy is fantastic because it's like a beautiful rhythm literally that's what it means and so um and then it's i mean as we know that's something that um um has a lot to do with music and in fact he bites the bullet and he's very intentional about the connection between architecture mathematics and music well mm. again the, the point that we're missing there is that in all three of them, um, there is a schematic approach to representation or to or to conception of a musical project or a architectural project or a mathematical project that has nothing to do with lived experience, nothing or barely right. to do with it. And so, right. so you and I know that Prince was the best guitar player ever. We know this. <laughs> okay. But we also right. know that he didn't read sheet music. He didn't. He, no, he didn't. Right. And so, and so he is the, it's like he's the architect who never uh, understood a blueprint, right? Which is uh, in, unconscionable on the terms of architectural education, on the terms of, um, of our normative expectations. But guess what? Fully possible. Um, there's um, at some point there was a um, exhibition of a, of the car collection of Ralph Lauren, the, the uh, fashion designer, and this was at the MFA up in Boston. This was many years ago, probably 20 years ago, and I think they're being exhibited a couple of times. But one of the cars, Sean, is made without any kind of sketching whatsoever. It's bending. All kinds of, you know, it's this, I mean, I think it's like one of these Ferrari designers, one of these legendary Italian people, uh, uh, automotive designers. But essentially, essentially, it was a sculpture of the most tentative variety. There was never a sketch. He didn't know what he was embarking on. Sounds like Pagani. It could have been a Pagani maybe. But anyway, yeah. Uh, maybe I don't know. It's good to look into, and I remember having pictures somewhere on one of my hard drives. But um, essentially, um, why not? Right? I mean, that's a good question. And then you, and then you look at. Uh, I, I do not like the expression vernacular architecture, and I'd rather not use it. But um, let's just say traditional architecture. Let's just say um, uh, even even bite the bullet and say um, underprivileged folks architecture <laughs> or underlooked architecture. How about underlooked architecture? There's there's very often no blueprint because the abstraction is not even productive, and also the quirks and the possibilities that emerge from from building in a certain way from well not only from the ground up but from the joint out right. Um, is is something is something that is again um, that goes completely against that the, the normative picture of a blueprint and then uh, but uh, a delivery or a deliverance. Um, right. Now you remember probably when we were reading about the uh, the house that uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein built for his sister. Well, yeah, it's a Margaret Stoneborough, and you know he it's it's astonishing how often does a philosopher like you know start you know, an architectural project. And he only did that one, but it's it's considered very important because it's a very it's a curious object. 
It speaks to a certain tradition, but it also charts possible directions for future architectures. But my favorite moment in the entire thing, and speaking to music specifically, is that he had a musical sense of, uh, of transition from space to space, right? So it's literally thinking of it in an operatic or symphonic manner. But my favorite thing is that once he was built, he realized that one of the ceilings was uh, needed to be a little bit taller, right? So why? Because the sketch could not deliver that notion to him un uh, until he was actually walking through the space. There you are. So, so um, how often do we build um, these um, forms where we are surprised by the phenomenological experience of walking through them or inhabiting them, but there's no reckoning with that surprise. In, in a sense, it remains, it remains an open question. The reason is that the blueprint was never, ever going to deliver um, on the promise. Right. The way sheet music, right. Is, sheet music is the starting point. I mean, think about interpretations of the same symphony by a different conductor. The conductor doesn't even play any music, and yet they are interpreting it, right? So how much right, right, that's, right. that basically shows you how, how far you can bend um, how far you can bend the notation sheet right every right. which way um, yeah. anyway I mean I have a lot more to say but this is probably good <laughs> yeah no no that, that's that's a great that's exactly those are exactly some of the things that yeah that I was that I was getting at I think that that's good um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to just explain like what duration is and and kind of why it matters when talking about uh experience how we experience the world well i mean it's I, just very very crudely and this i'm borrowing from bergson here because he talks about xenos paradoxes and so xenos paradoxes check out on a logical um scale because Essentially, when you when you have an arrow shooting through the through the air and it's trying to get from point A to point B, you know, bow and arrow type of situation, um, the arrow needs to travel half the distance because before it gets to the to the destination. But before it gets to the half distance, it needs to, to travel half of that. And before it travels half of that, it needs to travel half of that. And before it travels half of that, it, right? And so, how many times can you half a distance? The answer is infinitely. Right, the answer is infinitely, and that means that the arrow, uh, logically, the arrow never arrives because it needs to get to half before it gets the hole, and then to half before it gets the hole, and then to half before it gets the hole. So it never gets the hole because there's an infinite number of divisions of um, extend, ex extension in space. And so this is one of Zeno's paradoxes. The more famous one is the tortoise and the hare, right? Um, but essentially, both of them are saying motion is impossible. Right. And then and then, of, of course, you know, Bergson, and this is, you know, about 120 years ago, um, he just says, well, that's because our idea of motion is flawed because we don't. Understand. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he did. He, yeah, that's how pretty much how, how it came about. Yeah. Right. And so then let's just talk about simul simultaneity. Let's talk about, you know, uh, viewpoints. Let's talk about uh, embodiment. Um, let's talk about consciousness. Um, and so, and when you, of course it becomes, it, it becomes this heady mix of, um, opportunity, but also of, of unclarity, right? Once you, once you bring all of these, but duration essentially has to do with all, 
it has to do with consciousness, right? So what we are conscious of and to what extent, it has to do with, um, with uh, embodied um, experience, meaning um, tangible physicality. It has to do with motion in that, in, not in the abstract sense that uh, that Zeno was positing, right? Where you could have to distance yeah. and have to distance and have to distance, but in this, uh, in the sense of impetus, right? And, uh, and sort of like an unchecked um, uh, movement or traversing through space. And then it also has to do with space, right? And so one of the one of the best uh, or the simplest pieces of insight you get from Bergson. And at the same time, historically, roughly the same time, Einstein was working on this. And for a while, they were interlocutors. And, you know, Bergson was considered a contender. In fact, he tried to disprove the relativity theory or sort of, you know, make it more, you know, make problems for it. And then he had to re- retreat into, into, into a level of humility on it. But the whole point is that he's one of the major interlocutors in that conversation at the turn of the, um, you know, of the 20th century. And so... Um, it's the poetic reminder that's, that's, that we define space in terms of time and vice versa. So when you say, when you're talking about, think about this, uh, you're talking about the motion of an arrow and suddenly we're talking about space. Why are we suddenly discussing having a distance? To, to even mention distance is to spatialize something that was, ne- that was supposed to be durational, right? Yeah, and so it, right, it's, to, right. it's to reduce it to, 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 to a special metaphor. That's unfair to motion, and it's unfair to duration. Not unfair, but just unproductive, right? I mean, it's not about yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember in a time in uh, Bergson's uh, book or essay, I guess, "Time and Free Will." Yeah. Um, the the note that stuck with me ever since I read it, where he essentially says, <clears throat> even to posit the idea of like a number or like two numbers, um basically says something along the lines that there is no way to explain like the number two um, or any sequence of numbers without positing space without using spatial language. Um, Well, I don't know if I remember that, remember that correctly, but do you remember how he illustrates it? Do you remember how he illustrates it with the, with counting sheep? A a line. Oh, there's a, Oh, it was a sheep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he, it's, he might, for all I know, he might've done it three or four times in that book, but I remember the sheep thing because I'm obsessed with sheep. Yeah. And so um, I never understood the whole counting sheep thing, right? Okay, it's going to help you fall asleep. It's just like, you know, it, it's actually not helping yeah. me. But, and I've tried. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but he says something very, very sharp and very poetic at the same time. When you count sheep, he asks, and this is an earnest question that I think absolutely everyone should ask themselves. Are you seeing a flock of sheep and singling out one at a time? Or... Are sheep appearing one at a time on their own, in which case you're only looking at a sheep at any moment, a sheep rather than a multitude, right? And that's a very meaningful question, but it's a question about our, our, our conception of numbers. And a conception now in a, in a much more rich sense than, than just, you know, the paradigms of mathematics would allow for. Are your numbers from 1 to 10 scattered on the floor or do they show up uh, in a row like the soldiers they're supposed to be on the terms of mathematics? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, valid yeah. and polite. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, this has been a great conversation, Ross, and I appreciate your time. I mean, I could, I could go on and on, as you know. Did you want to? Did you want to leave the leave the audience with anything? Um, is there any is there any place where we could like find your work or or 
yeah, any, anything that you want to want to say to, to close this off? Well, I mean, um, yes and no, because I'd like you to have the last word. Um, this is, it's very exciting, you know, and I've listened to the first episode that you, you already, um, put out there. The second one I'm yet to listen to. I'm not so quick. Um, I'm all, I also yeah, say, no, you know, full disclosure, I don't listen to po- podcasts and I don't understand them yet. So, but you know, to <laughs> yeah. me, this is a conversation, uh, you know, with an exciting person rather than a podcast, you know, the fact that it gets to be, yeah. you know, to be placed in one, um, is exciting to me. I guess it's a new frontier. Um, but, um, I'll say that it's a very timely decision on your part in, in your growth as a thinker to be doing this. And I'll say also it's timely because of because of the landscape of inf- informational um, possibility out there. I think there's much that is lacking in some of these conversations that one hears. And, you know, I go to conferences. I read a lot of, you know, the blogs and entries and social media posts and such, certainly articles in newspapers yeah. and uh, journals. Um, and so timely and necessary uh, which is heartening, right? And I'm very honored to be a, a part of the conversation. I think it's an ongoing one between you, uh, you and me. So uh, part two, part three, whatever you need me for, I'm here for. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Ross, and I, I appreciate it. And um, just, just, just stick around. But thanks for the conversation. Okay, cool.